custom that I were to say, He is risen. He is risen Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, You are risen indeed, and it makes every, every difference in our life. Without You, there is no life. Without You, there is no hope. Lord, I pray that if there is someone in the sound of my voice uh, this morning who, it, it, right when I said that, no, no life, no hope, they knew, they knew that applied to them. In their spirit, they know. We all know when we don't have you. And Lord, we pray that today could be their day of salvation. Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that uh, we would just rejoice and lift you up like no time ever before. Because today is Resurrection Day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, we would love for you to uh, fill out one of these blue connection cards. And so uh, please... Please uh, fill that out. You can either put that in the offering plate or you can take it to the Connection Center. Okay? So please do that. And, of course, we have prayer cards and the staff and pastors will be uh, uh, faithful to pray for you for those. So please, please do that. Well, we um, talked about uh, singing God's praises today, resurrection songs. There is no better one than this Charles Wesley great hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Let's stand and sing it.
as we go to the Lord in prayer for our offering today, we have many guests with us today, and we believe uh, the church should support itself, right? And so uh, please don't feel compelled to give anything today, but we would love for you to give this little white card, put it in the uh, let us know your attendance, and that would be your gift to us today to let us know you're worshiping with us today, all right? So please do that. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now and we thank you for this opportunity to continue in a time of, of worship. Sometimes people think, oh, we stopped singing and we're no longer worshiping, we're, we're doing something else. No, 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 no. Couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, when we give, we worship. And uh, Lord, thank you for that opportunity to give back to you what you so richly deserve. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection of our Lord and consequently our resurrection from the dead. He says, O death, where is your sting? And O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And because of the finished work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we sing hallelujah.
be seated. Before the pastor comes and shares a message about our risen Lord, we'd like to sing a song for you and want you to worship along with it. I hope it's your story. I hope you can say 1 Corinthians 15 with, uh, with us and say, Death, where's your sting? Grave, where is your victory? You've got no claim on me. your sting oh death where is your victory grave where is your power you've got no claim on me you've got no claim on me oh my god is the risen king oh his name is victory alive inside of me fear where is your grip curse where's your authority hell where is your king you've got no claim on me no you've got no claim on me oh He died, he rose and is alive again. He lived, he bled, he died, he rose and is alive again. He lived, he lives, he loves, he loves, he saves.
There is no question that that kind of effervescent joy had to be in the hearts of the disciples when they could run down the dusty roads and say, Hergerte, in Greek, which means, He is risen. Amen. Man, what an awesome consideration today. If that did not get your fire started, then your wood is very wet. Amen. All right. The scripture focal text for this morning is found in Luke's gospel in verse 24, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 44. So give your attention to the reading of God's word. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The word must is a necessity. That's how it's translated. It is necessary. It must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I wish I could preach 50 through 53, but you know me well enough to know that that's probably a little bit too long. All right. Those verses talk about that he reigns and that he's worthy of worship. If we were preaching tonight, we would do that, and we'll, we'll come back to it. So, in John 20, verse 19, we read these words. Now, listen closely. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, saying, Peace be with you. Notice the verse. You catch it? The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them. When Jesus first appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they were cowering behind closed doors, locked doors, in fear that the authorities who had crucified the Lord God, their leader, would, what would they do next to them? But here's what we know, locked doors could not stop Jesus. Nothing stopped him from entering the house, re-entering their lives, proving himself to be Lord and Savior and their living hope. Similarly, in Acts 20 verse 24, in Peter's first sermon, he says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not keep him, Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. If the grave could not stop him, locked doors certainly had no chance of stopping him. Luke 24 is a life-changing part of the Bible. And all other synoptics, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a similar understanding of the occurrences, the occurrence, the event of the resurrection, and then the assurances that Jesus gives his disciples. So, in Luke 24, just like in the other Gospels, here is the life-changing part, and it includes... His very resurrection, which is life-changing. But it also contains what Jesus said to his followers during this time frame, which was life-changing. Think about it as a photo. When you glance at the photo, it's kind of fuzzy at first. And then you focus in and it becomes clear what the photo really is. And so there's a lot of fuzziness in the minds of the disciples and after the resurrection, Jesus Christ will clear that up for them 100%. So Jesus will take the totality of the entire redemptive history. Everything contained in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms. And he will bring every bit of that together at this moment in Luke chapter 24. So this brought clarity. And only Jesus can give you clarity about who he is. Only Christ can accomplish this. So Jesus brings focus to the entire Bible. And he reveals that it is he who is found in the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And 
it also teaches and brings focus to the entirety of human history. Why is that the case? How is it that he brings clarity to all of human history? Because Jesus Christ is the purpose of history. He is himself at the heart of the plan of God. His purpose, hear this, his plan cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Luke 24 is Christ the Lord unveiling himself to struggling, confused, doubting disciples. And after he reveals himself, they are forever transformed. As they truly see him for who he is, their faith is set on fire. So if you had time to read through Luke's gospel, especially chapter 23, verse 50, down through chapter 24, verse 43, just before we picked up in verse 44, it, pres- it presents many assurances that Christ is alive. What's the big one? The tomb is empty. And you'll read that in Luke 24, beginning in, uh, excuse me, Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. Not only that, but Jesus has many physical appearances before his disciples. And then you have the testimony of his words. And then you have the illumination, the inner testimony of illumination of the Spirit of God found in chapter 24, verse 16, verses 31 through 32, and verse 45. However, when you get to Luke 24, 44, it moves away from assurances. Then it presents itself like this. Since he is alive, now what? The assurances are there. The tomb is empty. Now what? Now that he is alive, what is the situation? What is the occurrence? What are we supposed to do? Uh, what are you supposed to do today in, the, in, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive? So, just two things this morning. Here it is. First, we know Jesus accomplished God's saving plan. Because he's alive, we know that Jesus Christ accomplished God's saving plan. Jesus will once again teach his disciples that he is the very embodiment of the word of God. Not fuzzy thinking. Not Reader's Digest, not what the world says, but what the Word of God says. That's what's important. And he himself will focus them upon the Word. What happened on Sunday morning was in keeping with what God said he would do in the Scriptures century before, centuries before it actually occurred. He is literally holding a Bible study with them right here. You ever had a Bible study? And he's going to sit with them, and he himself, the Lord of glory, is going to teach them from the word of God concerning himself. Now keep this in mind. None of the New Testament was written when Jesus taught this. He's only teaching them who he is from the Old Testament. That's what he's teaching, and he's having a Bible study. He had given them physical proof of his resurrection. Look at verses 38 and 39. But then again, now he gives them biblical evidence of his resurrection and the plan of salvation that's centered in his person, he's the son of God, and his work. So the tomb was open and it was empty. Now Jesus sought to open their eyes and their hearts and their minds so that they could see and believe. Just because you may believe that the tomb is empty doesn't doesn't mean that you have eyes to see and you believe the gospel. The tomb was empty. Yes, praise God for the fact. There is no Christianity without an empty tomb. However, for us, for you today, you have to see 
and you have to believe. Their minds were opened, according to this text. And what did they do when their minds were open? They believed. So, are you open today? Do you have eyes to see? As Ephesians would remind us, open the eyes of our heart so that we would understand and we would see. So, this opening clause, see it? Then he said to them, these are my words. Literally, word for word in the Greek, it can, it can mean this. My words that I spoke were these. And he will then use that truth with that express purpose to open their minds to understand. The way this is presented in a present active infinitive understand is used here to suggest that the opening to understanding wasn't merely a result of them listening. It was actually the purpose of why he said it. The purpose was to open their minds to who he is. And you may say, they were with him for all this time. Yet, there was some divine closing of the mind to understand uh, exactly who he is. We know this is in the word of God. There was a spiritual veil that had covered their understanding. So that on two occasions, we read this. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Luke 9.45, Luke 8.34, 2 Corinthians 3.13-16. Where were these words spoken about him that must be fulfilled? He says it, doesn't he? It was written of me that he would suffer and he must rise from the dead. Have y'all ever stopped and considered that his death and resurrection is all over the New Testament? Uh, is all over the Old Testament. Have you stopped and thought about that? Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It is all the scriptures, cover to cover, front to back. Jesus Jesus is God's saving plan. Christ the Lord is the only one that could accomplish that, the Son of God, and it's all over the scriptures. You don't have clarity on the Old Testament If you don't realize that Jesus Christ is the complete story of the Old Testament. Leon Morris said, The solemn division of Scripture into the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus Christ. God's saving plan always centered on Christ. God was not figuring things out one book at a time when he wrote the Bible. Uh, It was not as if Christ was somewhere down the road that it ended up being a good plan as God thought about this. No, folks, this was the plan from the very beginning. He was always at the center of that plan. All of history was building upon this plan accomplished through Christ. This was the unbreakable plan of God. God's saving plan must, again, in in the Greek... It's necessary. Jesus will even say this. I must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. I must be among, I must be numbered among the transgressors. What is he quoting? Isaiah 53. He's quoting something 700 years before he actually went to the cross. So, this was all accomplished, clearly taught through the law, through uh, the prophets, And according to the word of God in the Psalms. 
This is the third time that he gives them understanding. For your own benefit, would you please go back and read the Gospel of Luke 24. Look at verses 6 through 8. That's the first time he's trying to teach his disciples. And what does he do? He uses the Word of God to do so. In 25 through 27, he does it again. And then again here, in this context, he's going to preach about himself from the Old Testament. Let's talk about that for a moment. Y'all got anywhere to go? All right, let's talk about what, what does it mean for him to be the fulfillment of the law? Can you remember this great institution that was given under the law? In Exodus chapter 24, the old covenant was launched on a sea of blood. Just read your Bible. Animal sacrifices were given. Moses took that blood. He doused it on the altar. He put it in on the book. He put it on the people's. In other words, oceans of blood flowed upon Jewish altars for centuries in the form of suffering animals. But these sacrifices were not enough to atone for our sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible reminds us that it pointed to and they were fulfilled not by the blood of goats and calves, but by goats and calves, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a copy of God's Word, you're going to have to turn fast because I'm going to be going fast, but listen to Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 13. Think about the ocean, sea of blood in the Old Testament. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And down in verse 23 of chapter 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies, that's the Old Testament sacrificial system, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with his own blood. He entered it one time and made a sacrifice for all time. If it's not enough to think about Exodus 24, what about Exodus 12? Y'all know what that chapter's about? It's about the Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Both expiation, the covering of our sin, and propitiation. God's wrath will be turned away. And what does Jesus do on the night that he was betrayed? He takes bread and he blesses it. And he breaks it and gives it to them. And he takes the cup in, his, in the new covenant in his blood represented by wine. And they partake of it. And he teaches them that I am the Passover lamb. I am the one that's going to sacrifice. All the priests before me had to have atonement for their own sins before they entered in. But not me. Why? Because I am the spotless Lamb of God without blemish. He that knew no sin became sin for us. And we, will learn, we would learn from the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb. To God be the glory. Now I could preach forever on the law teaching us of Christ. What about the prophets? Where is the gospel found? Well, the most explicit teaching is Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our iniquities. His trans, our, he was bruised for our 
iniquities. Think about that incredible teaching of Isaiah the prophet, reminding us that Jesus Christ himself would be our substitute. Uh, Jesus will directly refer to this chapter in the upper room, by, again, by referring to the fact that he was numbered with the transgressors. That is Isaiah 53, verse 12. He is the fulfillment of every line of these chapters as the ultimate suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. The gospel of Jesus Christ is t- clearly taught in the prophets. I'm not going to take the time to read Isaiah 53, but you should. You ought to do it today and see how Christ is the fulfillment. That is what Isaiah 53 is talking about. It's talking about the Lord of glory who would become our substitute, bear our sins. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Our sin was laid upon him. That's what the text teaches us. How about the Psalms? Psalm 22, you know this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does Jesus use that? Absolutely. But not just that only. Not just a technical sense of that. But even more, it perfectly describes Jesus' experience. Even to the detail of them casting lots at the foot of the cross for his garments. Psalm 22, verse 18. They cast lots for his garments. Folks, is that an accident? Again, He can't be stopped, and it must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. The Psalms also teach the resurrection. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching his first sermon. Can you imagine what it's like? Fresh from the trauma of resurrection, having beheld the King of glory, to then be able to... I get to preach on Resurrection Sunday, and that's pretty awesome. But can you imagine... Preaching the very first sermon. After Peter had fallen because of his sin. Denying Christ. But all of a sudden. Because of the resurrection. Because of who Jesus is. Because of God accomplishing that salvation plan. Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. And 3,000 souls are slayed. And they trust in the Lord. But Peter will explain something about David. So Peter is preaching in Acts 2. But he's picking up in Psalm 16. And what we learn is that uh, David will say, My soul, my body shall not see corruption. But we know that David died. And you can go to his tomb today. And if you dig it up, his bones are still in there. So David was not talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. And he tells us that his body will not see decomposition. What a stroke of genius. Because Peter is preaching to the Jews. And they revered three men above all. Abraham. Moses. And David. Abraham was buried in Hebron. A town south of Jerusalem. Nobody knew where Moses was buried. Because the Lord says I'm going to bury you somewhere. And they're not going to find where I bury you. Right? People claim to know where he was buried. But they don't know. But everyone knew where David was buried. All they had to do was walk outside of Jerusalem, and they could see his tomb. You can visit it. You can point at it. You can stand there and look at it. Go check it out for yourself. David, Peter says, died 1,000 years ago, and his body's still in the tomb, but Jesus borrowed a tomb, and he was only there for 36 hours, and then he left that tomb behind forever. That's why they call it the borrowed tomb. Amen? 
He didn't plan to stay there very long. And Peter then comes to this stirring conclusion. Acts 2.36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Is that popular preaching? You crucified the Lord of glory. And if the truth be known, look at me. It was your sins that crucified him. Not just theirs. Who crucified him, both Lord and Christ. It was impossible for the grave to hold him. So Sunday evening, privately with his disciples, in a Bible study, Jesus Christ grounds God's saving plan and mission in the Old Testament scriptures. He showed them that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms taught his suffering, taught his death, taught his resurrection. And his mission to the world begins in Jerusalem. But it's not supposed to stay there. It's supposed to go to the ends of the earth. Aren't you so thankful that it came to the U.S.? Aren't you thankful for the Macedonian call that moved the gospel west? You need to be thankful that we were able to hear the word of God and believe. So this is the witness of the word of God concerning the Son of God. Here's what Paul will say. 1 Corinthians 15. I give to you of, of most important things that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? Which scriptures? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Talk to me. Which scriptures? The Old Testament. I tell you that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And then according to the scriptures, Old Testament, he rose again. The Bible says in Zechariah, he will be, Zechariah 10, he will be bringing salvation. He will be endowed to save. He will be resurrected and he will save sinners. So make sure you think about that on this particular Sunday morning. I don't like the word Easter. I like Resurrection Sunday. And I've got news for you. It's not today on April 9th. It's every Sunday. We have no idea which day. It was a Sunday, but we have no calendar date. For when Christ come forth from the grave. But it's the Lord's day. It's Sunday when he came out of the grave. So think about that. This is not accidental. This is not plan B. This is the only plan God ever had to save mankind. And it's been accomplished in Jesus. That's point number one. Number two. We know Jesus will be proclaimed to the nations by his people. Empowered by his spirit. Check the end of it. You stay here. Until I give you the power, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will then take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's the saving plan, according to the Bible, that's going to go to the ends of the earth. You're in this room hiding as a coward. But you've seen me. I am with you. Now you get out of here and take the gospel to the ends of the earth and I'm with you. They must do it. And they must do it in the promise of the Holy Spirit. But notice what Jesus says. The Bible says that they will preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Who said this? Jesus said this. The Bible says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. We must preach repentance, church family. We must preach repentance. Is this ingredient missing in far too many gospel presentations today? I hear more of this. God has a plan for you. Just 
Believe he's got a plan for you, walk the aisle, sign the card, and you're a member of the church. That's what you hear so often. But Jesus said, repentance must be preached. Christ did not come to improve our lives, but to crucify it and bury it with him so that we would be raised in newness of life. That's good preaching, whoever you are. That's the only gospel that the Bible knows. That it's death to self and becoming alive in Christ. That's repentance. The word is metanoia, and it means a change of mind. It is treated most poignantly with this particular phrase, Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20. It is the knowledge of sin produced by the law. In other words, you can't have repentance unless you have knowledge of sin that is produced by the word of God. You can't repent. You don't know what repentance is unless that happens. So the spirit of God is the attorney sent to convict us inwardly of God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. You don't know that you need righteousness if you don't know you're unrighteous. And repentance is what is mandatory and necessary. Necessary. So this knowledge is not merely intellectual. It has to be also emotional. It involves the whole person. We see features of re- repentance exhibited in David's prayer of confession. Let me just allow me to read the very first part. Again, you got homework tonight on Resurrection Sunday. Here's what David says. Have mercy on me, God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. If I had time, I'd read down through, verses, down through verse 9. But here, here's what David said. First, David is not simply ashamed of his behavior, but he's guilty. Are y'all listening? America likes to pass the buck. Nobody's guilty. Everybody's passing the blame. I've got news for you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And David understands this. He's not simply ashamed of his behavior. I'm guilty before you, God. I'm guilty. Number two, although he has sinned cruelly against Bathsheba and he's plotted murder, he murders her husband. He recognizes that his sin is first and foremost against God. God against you only have I sinned. That's repentance. It's more than just being ashamed for behavior. We're guilty. Not only are we guilty, but we know that our sin is first and foremost against a holy God. Repentance is not only remorse for having wronged our neighbor, but it's recognition that God is the most offended party of all. Third, David does not try to atone for his own sins. He doesn't try to pacify God's just anger by his remorse. What does David do? He confesses before God strong that I'm condemned. I am condemned, and he does not try to justify himself. Number four, David acknowledges not only his sinful actions, but his sinful condition from the hour of his conception. I was born, I was brought forth in iniquity. He acknowledges his sin. So repentance pertains not simply certain sins. Pagans can be remorseful for their immoderate behavior. Rather, repentance is the revulsion of the whole soul towards alliance with sin and death. Although such godly sorrow leads David to despair 
of his own righteousness, listen folks, he does not, it does not lead him to final despair that often leads the ungodly to either self-destruction or a searing of their conscience as Paul, deserve, as Paul observes. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What did David do? David leaned on the loving kindness of God. He knew that he could not forgive himself. He knew that he could not atone for his own sins. But instead of being grief-stricken to that point of having no hope, he turns his mind toward Christ the Lord, who is the only one that can forgive his sins. Hear this again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10. After all, the Bible tells us, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's what the Bible says, Romans 2.4. So while the law produces a legal repentance, what does that mean? Fear of judgment. The gospel engenders an evangelical repentance that bears fruit and change. David turns outside himself and he looks to the merciful God. God, have mercy on my soul. So by itself, repentance is merely the experience of damnation. By itself, repentance is merely the experience of damnation. When you see yourself for who you are, you cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me! That's what repentance does. Until you look in faith to Jesus Christ. Repentance leads godly kindness from God leads to repentance. I think it's important to note that repentance is more broadly defined to include character and behavior, right? In other words, we look at people and we say, so-and-so is a penitent sinner. I mean, they repent all the time. Does anybody ever find themselves repenting all the time? God, I repent. Look, folks, there's a difference between from initial repentance that leads you to faith in Christ and then the fruit of repentance. In other words, if you never repent after you're saved, you were never saved to begin with. There is a fruit of repentance. In other words, that initial understanding that you are legally condemned before God. And then you look to the gospel and Christ and mercy from God. And then you become a repentant sinner for the rest of your life. Knowing that you confess your sins before him. The Bible calls it the fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8. Or deeds in keeping with repentance. Folks, do you have deeds that keep with repentance in your life? That's what it's saying. So this would tell us that repentance is more than a one-time act. As believers, our whole life should be one of repentance. So the Spirit brings us to repentance by convicting us of sin by the law... And then the gospel leads us to faith in Christ. And this faith produces within us a hatred for sin and a craving for righteousness. Let me warn you of something that is very serious and critical at this point. It's an error that a lot of evangelicals make. Some teach that forgiveness and justification are conditioned on the degree of your repentance or on new obedience. That's a heresy. Some... Christians struggle to the point of despair over whether the quality and degree of their repentance is adequate to be forgiven of. Listen, as if repentance were the ground of forgiveness. And the former is measured by the intensity of your emotion or resolve. According to the word of God, it is not our tears 
but Christ's blood that satisfies God's holy judgment and establishes peace with God. Don't make that error. Listen to Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Don't you love that song? Here's what he's, Augustus' top lady said this. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So the law brings repentance by convicting us of sin. But only the gospel can lead us to boldly claim God's promise with David. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Listen, folks, if you're lost today and you realize it, that your sin separates you from God, that's called repentance. And you are to immediately run to the only one that can blot out your iniquities. Hallelujah. Run to the only one that can blot out your iniquity. So Jesus calls us to be faithful in taking that gospel plan to the nations. Now most of the time, that's a conversation killer for you to look somebody in the face and say, you know what, you're wicked. That's a conversation killer. Your sin has separated you from God. And if you die in your sin, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's a conversation killer. But that's what Jesus told us to do. And the only gospel we can take to the world is the one Jesus told us to take. And the Bible says, you must preach repentance. The consequence, if you don't, is that conversion is represented merely as moral improvement. It's this the addition of certain distinctives to give us what we call Christian piety. Biblical repentance involves a fundamental renunciation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That includes spirituality, experiences, moral efforts, whatever. Self, autonomy. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you on the cross and that alone. Nothing else. Why? Because we're guilty before God without the gospel. We're guilty. So the best, the best desires of your heart are tainted with evil. God must judge because of his holy and righteous nature. You must turn from your sins. It's not popular but it's Bible. And here quickly, aren't you thankful for the last part? Forgiveness of sins. Did y'all know that the crown jewel of the gospel is forgiveness of sins? Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12. Look at it with me, please. I'm going to wrap this up fast because we've got another service. And you're blessed to get the short version. Because I have to preach again at 1030. So I will add some to it if you'd like to stay for the next hour. All right? Verse 12. Please hear this. Hebrews 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You could have come in here feeling like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, and you do if you're lost. And God... If he has awakened you to that, only Jesus can open your mind to understand the gospel. Only he can give you understanding of the scriptures. But if you have that today, and you sense that you're under a holy indictment from God, and you sense repentance, you sense that judgment coming, and you must turn. Listen to me. Understand that if you trust in Christ, you are forgiven, and he remembers your sin no more. Isn't that awesome? It's the crown jewel. Of the gospel. There's a connection in this passage in Hebrews with knowing God. Please hear me. There's a connection that 
you won't need a teacher anymore because everybody will know the Lord in the sense of understanding the law. Okay? You will, you will be, he will be your God. You shall be his people. So there is a direct connection in knowing God and being forgiven. Here's what it means. There's no knowledge of God and knowing him personally without him forgiving you. They're connected. Read Hebrews, 12, Hebrews 8. That's one more assignment for you. Read it. There's absolutely no way that God can be known by humanity apart from forgiveness. No knowledge of him without him forgiving you. So there's an incredible connection. Jeremiah presents forgiveness as the basis of the new covenant relationship. Jeremiah 31. How can you know him and why can you know him? We can know him because he has come and he has shown mercy to us. He has forgiven all of our sins. And I hope you have a good memory to remember that sin is always an impediment to knowing God. Sin is what separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 12. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and our God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Hear that, folks. Sin causes a fundamental breach between us and our Creator. And in the New Covenant... The Holy Spirit comes to the preaching of the word. He illuminates our hearts and minds so that we'll know the Lord God, so that we'll seek repentance, so that we will seek forgiveness. What's happening on the inside is the fundamental reception of the acknowledgement that you have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment you come to know God is to know that you are forgiven in him. The moment you come to know him is to know that you have been forgiven by him and you're in his presence. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't have a reception an acknowledgement of the forgiveness of God, then you don't know God no matter what you say. If you don't have this fundamental understanding that your sins have been forgiven, you do not know God no matter what kind of theology you have. In other words, God is only known by sinners as the merciful, forgiving God who through the cross washed our sins away. This is the only God you will ever know. There's only one God. There's only one way to know God, and that is through the cross of Christ. That's why he died. We see him bearing the wrath of his father in all that violence and all that vicariousness. To know God is to know him in mercy, to know him in forgiveness because of Christ. This is a promise in the new covenant. This is the promise of the gospel. For those who have felt the weight and the guilt of your own sin, there's absolutely nothing better than knowing that because of Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Let that resonate in your mind. I will remember your sins no more. Let that resonate in your mind. There's nothing better than knowing that. That's why we ought to sing the loudest. We ought to be the most joyful people in the world. We ought to smile. Because our sins are forgiven. What a blessing. Our culture, like no other before us, attempts to turn sin into something fun. And guilt into something that is someone else's fault. We're bombarded today with a culture telling us that sin is not really evil. And most importantly, someone else is to blame for it or the way we feel about it. For our culture, it is, un, it is usually your parents who are blamed or your environment. As the war wages against the guilt and shame of sin, understand that there's something happening when that takes place. The enemy is trying to undermine, undermine the necessity and beauty of gospel forgiveness. If our world thinks they're good... And they can cast the blame on anybody else. They will never individually understand that they're sinners before God. And unless you do that, there's no way of salvation. 
There's no way of salvation. You won't see the glory and excellency of pardoning mercy unless you're convinced of the greatness and vileness of your own sin. Did y'all hear that? You won't see the beauty of the gospel. I'm fearful that I even see believers walking around the streets, kids going to school, folks going to jobs, and they don't act like they see the beauty of the gospel. Because we think everybody's okay. That's not true. Do I need to remind you that God has a perfect track record? He's never one time failed. And on the authority of the word of God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not going to change. He's the only one that doesn't change. But you do. And the fact of the matter is, please, you have to see the necessity of the beauty and glory of the gospel. The greatest blessing and the most glorious promise of the New Testament and the gospel is the forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our sins has such an incredible experiential aspect to it. When you sense your guilt and your shame, then you experience the pardoning mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. God brings you a sense of peace, of relief, of pardon. Here it is. You've got the rope around your neck. It's chafing your skin. And you stood on the scaffold knowing that you were condemned. Yet God comes along and he takes the rope off your neck and he declares your sins are forgiven. What? When that happens and you really felt the rope around your neck, forgiveness is the greatest blessing you could ever imagine. So my prayer today is that for those of you whose sins are not forgiven, that the Holy Spirit of God will open your heart and mind to the gracious, able, willing Savior. And today, you would leave this place free from the burden of your sin. For the ones of you that know Christ and his forgiveness, I pray that God will revive your hearts to the power and beauty of gospel forgiveness. Aren't you thankful for it? Your burden has been taken away, all for Christ's sake. Father, we bow before you. Lord, I know I've done the best job I possibly can humanly, To convey our need for you. To teach what the Bible says. But Lord I can't change a single soul. Only you can open hearts and minds. Only you can issue forth repentance. Only you can grant repentance. Lord I would pray today. That for the lost sinner in this building. That you would open their eyes to see the gospel. The glory of Jesus. Help them see the magnitude of their vileness before you, that they're sinners. And as David, may they cast themselves on the mercy of God. Only you, Lord Jesus, can blot out our iniquities. And we give you praise and glory for Hebrews 8, 12. You will remember their sins no more when they put their faith and trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a short invitation before the Lord. Brother David will lead us. If you're lost today, don't sit where you are. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's sing. Stand together. Sing, Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, he was.
This is Billy, Sarah, Charlie, Liam, Brockmeyer family. They've been coming for quite some time. This guy grew up Lutheran, right? Methodist. Methodist. Close. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) And he wants to tell you today that he's trusted Christ and he wants to join our church by profession of faith and baptism. God is good. Charlie has trusted Christ and wants to follow in believer's baptism. Liam has trusted Christ and wants to follow in believer's baptism. And Miss Sarah has already trusted Jesus as Lord and followed in believer's baptism. So to God be the glory. I'm about to baptize the whole family. All right? Amen. God is good. So they're the newest members of our church. They're engaged right now in the new members class. So we welcome them. Amen. God is good. Praise the Lord. All right? Billy and Sarah, we'll have you all go back to the back. And we'll have people greet you as they move out of here. All right. God is good. You know, the invitation doesn't stop here. Because the hound of heaven never stops. He cannot be stopped. You can't get behind locked doors because he'll get through there. A grave can't hold him. And I'm telling you, you can't stop him. It's impossible. You can't get away from him. C.S. Lewis said this to a young college student. You're caught in the net of the Holy Spirit and you might as well give up. When he catches you in his net, you will give up. You will. So my prayer is that you'll get caught in his net. Amen. God is good. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Amen.